1: but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm Nate Hedgie, joined today by Nick Capadice and Hannah McCarthy. Hello. Hello, Nate. Hi. So our episode begins with a tale, which we might call The Chicken and the Airplane. Well, this sounds a little bit like a fable. Is the chicken
2: going to get a thorn stuck in its paw? (laughs) I don't think chickens have paws. It's (laughs) talons.
1: I I like paw better. It's 1942, well into the Second World War. It's been five years since Amelia Earhart disappeared into the Pacific Ocean.
3: Okay, so airplanes are still a relatively new invention, but they're not brand new. You're not going to necessarily think it's like a dragon in the sky.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So, this guy, Thomas Lee Cosby, is this chicken farmer in South Carolina. He lives less than half a mile from a municipal airport, which wasn't a big deal until the U.S. military leased the airport in 1942. And so, this is wartime, so we've got heavy bombers, transports, fighter planes. They're taking off, they're landing, oftentimes right over Cosby's farm. And they were flying, like low, like barely missing the tops of the trees. Wow. That sounds unlivable. Well, yes. His family, they're losing sleep, and his chickens are so freaked out by the lights and the noise that when the planes fly over, (laughs) they literally throw themselves into the walls in fright and die. They die in fright? Yeah. 150 of his chickens die this way, and eventually... Cosby loses his poultry business and so he decides to sue the United States and he argues this he says I own this property including the air right above my house and you the U.S. military you have trespassed so what do you guys think do you you think he's right folks well
2: let me just say I am fascinated to learn the answer to this because we did an episode on whether or not Santa is a criminal <laughs> and a lot of that had to do with you know who controls or who owns the airspace above your home, above your property. What is trespassing?
1: So I'm desperate to learn this. Well, that is that is the question here. Who owns the skies? <laughs> I'm Nate Hedgy, host of the NHPR podcast Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it.
3: And I'm Hannah McCarthy, and Nick Capodice and I are the co-hosts of Civics 101, also from NHPR. Ours is a podcast about how our democracy works.
2: Yeah, or how it's supposed to work
1: most of the time. And today we're teaming up to talk about a subject that connects both of our shows, property. From just above the ground to high in the sky, all the way to the dang moon where nations are fighting over who gets to do what in outer space. Outside In producer Justine Paradise answered this one for us, so I'm going to step out and let her take
4: it from here. Make it so. So
5: I want to start with a 1,500-year-old principle today. Uh, It's a principle about private property rights, and it comes from medieval Rome. It's called ad coelum. And it goes like this. Whoever owns the soil, it is theirs up to heaven and down to hell.
2: Up to heaven and down to hell? Indeed.
5: And by the way, ad coelum, I have heard this pronounced different ways. I don't speak Latin, but we're going to go with ad coelum. This was a principle articulated by a medieval Roman jurist, then absorbed into English common law. And then, in the United States, English common law got adopted by many states, at least where it was, quote, not repugnant to the Constitution or laws of this state. Can you think of something that might be repugnant to these United States of America?
2: I sure can, Justine.
6: Kings! <laughs> the Founding Fathers were obsessed with preventing tyranny of government.
5: This is Colin Gerald mack Colin is a professor of sociology and environmental studies at NYU And he explained to me that Thomas Jefferson especially saw owning property as a big part of democracy.
6: He envisioned a democracy meaning that every sovereign citizen owns land and owns enough land that they are self-sufficient. And the idea of that was if you are self-sufficient, then you don't need the government to give you certain basic needs. And so land sovereignty was basically a way of checking government authority. And the Jeffersonian idea, which really won out, I should say won out for white males, was that you are really not a citizen if you don't own land.
2: Right. And to reiterate what we've said in several episodes, uh, at the beginning of America's history, only white males with property could vote. Uh, And this idea won the day, so to speak.
5: Yeah. And so strong protections for private property were really a founding principle of this country. But- The point is for this particular story and part of the reason why this was such a big deal here is because of how other countries had previously approached private property specifically of up to heaven and down to hell and that down to hell part what we're really talking about is mineral rights
6: in every other country more or less to varying degrees the government owns the mineral rights and so you own the surface but if the government wants to mine the government makes that decision And then uh, the individual doesn't, you know, doesn't have a choice and the individual does not directly profit from that.
5: In England, landowners did have mineral rights, except for one maybe repugnant detail.
6: There was a huge caveat to mineral rights ownership, which is that the crown retained pretty much every valuable mineral. So you technically owned the subsurface, but if there was oil or silver or gold or diamonds in that subsurface, and you obtain it, the government owned that.
2: Uh-huh. Oh, that's interesting. So the English crown gets your diamonds.
5: Naturally. Whereas in America, if a company wants the mineral rights to your land, like to frack, for instance, they have to ask permission and probably pay you for the right to frack that methane. And that is why Collins' book about fracking is called
6: Up to Heaven and Down to Hell. Oh, there it is. The so-called Founding Fathers, this was a very conscious decision. America is the only country in the world where the majority of land ownership, private land ownership, includes the mineral rights and the air above.
5: And the air above. So let's turn our attention to the skies. This country boasts a rich history of property disputes, both large and small, over the 1800s and early 1900s. And for a while... Cases concerning Ad Coelum are looking at disputes much closer to the ground than the heavens. Like overhanging branches, for example. The courts say, Ad Coelum, that's a (laughs) trespass and a nuisance. Protruding eaves, cornices, windows, roofs, walls. You can't use them to get around a property line.
2: Right. So you can't build your way over someone else's land. Their property is there. You cannot. Okay.
5: That's a trespass. According to case law, you don't even have to be touching the ground in order to have trespassed. In 1925, Montana's Supreme Court held that shooting a duck over a neighbor's land is trespassing into their airspace, even though the trespass is temporary. Even if you miss, even if it does no damage. In Iowa in 1902, there was a case disputing an arm extended over a property line to retrieve their own ladder.
3: (laughs) A guy reached over to grab his ladder... It's, it strikes me that maybe there were some other issues going on, if there was a case oh, about this. you are this. not wrong. <laughs> these
5: particular neighbors did not have a peaceful relationship. In addition to the arm in question, bricks and, quote, opprobrious epithets frequently crossed the fence. And when these families went to court to settle the question of this arm extended in malice, ad coelum. Oh. As one judge in Montana observed in 1925, quote, It seems to be the consensus of the holdings of the courts in this country that airspace, at least near the ground, is almost as inviolable as the soil itself. The reasoning in many of these rulings is that the landowner has a right for use and enjoyment of the land. In the case of airspace, that might even mean light and air. In other words, the enjoyment of a nice view. Do you remember how you can lease or sell the mineral rights below the ground on your property? Yeah. 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 So the same is true of air rights. Let's take the example of New York City.
7: All right, now we're cooking. The rules are actually quite complicated for how tall you can build and for where you can transfer those air rights to and from.
5: This is Michael Heller. He's a professor of property law at Columbia University and co-author of a book called Mine, How the Hidden Rules of Ownership Control Our Lives.
7: In New York, and many states, air rights are a piece of property, just like a cup of coffee. They can be bought and sold and traded and mortgaged. And they're understood by real estate developers as property, just as solid in some sense as the ground on which they hover above.
3: This doesn't surprise me at all, having lived in New York, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, space is so precious, so precious. A parking spot costs like 800 (laughs) bucks a month, you know?
2: So I used to give walking tours in New York and I would see these really tall buildings in sort of much lower neighborhoods. And I was always like, how could they build that tall when everyone else is clearly forbidden to stop above five floors? And I found out that they could just buy the air from other buildings and put it on top of their own. And it blew my mind.
5: Yeah. And that's how developers get around these height restrictions in certain neighborhoods. And there's, of course, a big money colored reason they might be motivated to do that.
7: Each story that you go up in New York is increasingly valuable. It's not just one more story, but it's 1.5x or 2x. Right, The tallest uh, unblockable views have an enormous uh, premium. So it's that premium which actually helps turbocharge uh, the air rights market in New York City.
5: So backing up a bit, um, going back to our story of Ad Coelum. Courts have been ruling in favor of this doctrine for over a century. But this idea of up to heaven, that's challenged when something happens that the Romans maybe did not anticipate.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, flight, right?
2: Yeah, sky dragons.
7: The airplanes caused problems at literally at all different levels. If the U.S. were to have decided which was possible 100 years ago, that the ad column doctrine actually did continue all the way up until we hit outer space, uh, then air travel wouldn't have been possible, right? It would have taken too many negotiations to have a single airway from uh, New Hampshire to New York. That would have been an impossible flight.
5: So by the 1920s, the U.S. government is trying to start to put air traffic regulations in place. Like the 1926 Air Commerce Act passed by Congress, which authorized the Secretary of Commerce to establish an altitude. So an actual number. Huh. that basically put a cap on the rights of Ad Coelum.
7: There were different legal routes uh, that we could have used. Um, but the one that we settled on was to say that, you know, as a legislative matter above a thousand feet uh, simply isn't your
5: space. To clarify, that's 1,000 feet over cities and towns and settled areas. It drops to 500 feet everywhere else. But this act failed to address a very important part of flight. Two, actually. <laughs> taking off and landing. Which brings us back... ...to our chicken farmer.
3: So where are we in this story, Hannah? All right. We started out with the chicken farmer, Thomas Cosby. He sued the United States. He said, you know, you completely ruined my poultry farm. My chickens died of fright. You owe me money. And the United States says, no, we can use the airspace. You can't you can't come at us for that. That's perfectly legal.
5: Yes. And so Cosby, again, who lives right next to an airport where U.S. military planes are gliding in way lower than 500 feet, His case is based on an important part of the Constitution.
7: The chicken farmer's protection was grounded in the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It was grounded in what's called the Takings Clause.
5: All right. You two are journalists on that American history beat. Can you give us some insight here? Nick, what is the Takings Clause of the Fifth Amendment?
2: So basically, the Takings Clause is kind of tied to what we think of as uh, eminent domain. Basically, The government can't take something from you for its own use without giving you compensation for it. Um, You know, the government can say, hey, we need this land or we need this thing. We're going to take it. But they have to give something in return.
5: And here's how the Supreme Court ruled. It said, by flying their planes in this manner, the United States had effectively confiscated Cosby's property. And according to the Fifth Amendment, he was due just compensation.
3: Effectively confiscated. That is fascinating. I love law. So he he was due money.
5: Yeah, he got 2000 bucks. At the time, that was the kind of money that could buy a house. The Supreme Court wrote in their majority opinion that they must rule this way because if they did not, quote, the owner's right to possess and exploit the land would be destroyed. But even though they ruled that Cosby was due damages, the court also explicitly wrote that ad coelum, the idea that those land rights go infinitely upward, that... Has no place in the modern world.
2: So, Justine, the Supreme Court's ruling says that legislation that had been on the books, on a basic level, it is constitutional to make the air a public highway. You don't. You, as an American, do not get (laughs) enjoyment of your property all the way to heaven. You got it. So this was in the 1940s, Justine? Yes. It's so interesting that so many years later, we kind of are coming back to where we started with our founding, with this principle, you know, which made it to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it was based on an idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. That's where we got that expression. So we're coming back to our founders' kind of principles of property being the thing that is yours in the United States.
3: Yeah. Yeah, but of course, you know, it's not that straightforward. Like, if you look back to what our framers were doing there, they're tying citizenship and property together, but they're barring so many people from that Mm. mechanism, right? Enslaved people, women who were themselves considered property And then later on in American history, the government continues to block people from owning property, especially black people in America. I mean, this carried throughout the 20th century. So it's really not that pure. Yeah,
5: absolutely. I mean, I think when I asked Colin Jeromack, that professor who wrote the book on fracking earlier, you know, do you think that this worked? Do you think that property helping us be more free as a society, as a nation, did that work? And he was like, absolutely not, you know. <laughs> so I'm I'm very happy that the Declaration of Independence says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know what I mean?
3: I think it is hilarious that the founders saw life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. And they just sort of took the quill <laughs> and crossed that one out. They agreed, you know, let's not say it like that. Take... Think- Goodness. Or that's how the story goes, anyway.
5: All right. So that's the skies in the sense of the earthly atmosphere. Next up
4: I'm escaping
8: to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism.
5: Space! That's after the break.
1: Hey, Nate here again, host of Outside In. Before we break, we didn't talk about one very obvious major technology, which right now is testing this question of who owns the skies. Drones. There's a lot of debate about the use of drones by police, firefighters, in wildlife tracking. I mean, for wedding photography, for package delivery. Can drones carry cameras? What about guns? And who gets to decide? The states? The feds? What about unmanned balloons? Frankly, it's a whole nother episode. But if you're interested, we are going to address some of these questions in the Outside In newsletter, which is free and comes out every two weeks. You can sign up in the show notes or on our website, outsideinradio.org. Okay, we'll be right back.
5: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com
0: backslash pod five zero for 50% off. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
2: Justine, have you heard my wharf impression? No. It's basically just me blowing out of my nose going, Sir.
5: (laughs) That's all I got. (laughs) Sir. All right, we're back. Nick Capodice and Hannah McCarthy of Civics 101. Hello. Hello.
3: Hello. Hello.
5: A few minutes ago, we talked about the altitude where navigable airspace begins, according to the United States. There are actual numbers here. Do you remember?
2: Yes, I do. Basically 500 feet or 1,000 feet, depending on if you're in like a city or a town or whatever.
3: But what about where outer space begins? You know, when does it stop being sky and start being space? Glad you asked.
4: Well, that's an unresolved question. Of
3: course. Of course it's an unresolved question.
5: By the way, this is George Anthony Long. George is an attorney, and these days he specializes in space law. Space law! Space law! He did need to go back to school (laughs) to get an extra special law degree for it. So I, I reached out to George because I wanted to understand how property and territory work in space. To ask the question, who owns the sky beyond Earth? But yeah, George says there is no consensus in the international community about where airspace ends and outer space begins.
4: To be truthful, space is just one of those areas you sort of, at the certain point, you know when you're there. But the whole point (laughs) is when you get there, you know, at what point it is that you arrive there, that's where it's unclear. All
2: right. Well, this is an echo of a famous Supreme Court statement uh, in an obscenity case in which Justice Potter Stewart said, quote, I'll know it when I see it. So we've got kind of this unexpected overlap between space and obscene material here. Quick and strange aside, Justine, I read once that Supreme Court justices in the 70s used to watch obscene material. They'd have like a a movie get together.
5: All of the Supreme Court bros would get together.
2: Yeah, and watch some, yep. All right. I think they even called it movie day.
5: What? Are you kidding me?
2: Nope. (laughs) True story.
5: So space law is governed by just a handful of treaties through the United Nations.
4: Generally, there are five international space law treaties.
5: The first and biggest one is the Outer Space Treaty of 1967.
4: That is the cornerstone of space law.
5: And I think the major thing to understand is that the context for this treaty was the Cold War. And among the principal stakeholders were the Soviet Union and the United States. It was just 10 years after the Soviet Union had launched the first man-made satellite into space.
2: Yeah, Sputnik. Two years before the United States put a man on the moon. So we're mid-space race here.
4: Our objective is not to continue the Cold War, but to end it. We have signed an agreement to the United Nations on the peaceful uses of outer space.
5: The first article of the Outer Space Treaty says, well, actually, do one of you want to read this? Sure.
3: The exploration and use of outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, shall be carried out for the benefit and in the interests of all countries, irrespective of their degree of economic or scientific development, and shall be the province of all mankind. What a nice notion. Isn't it so When was the nice? last time you heard something like that? Wowzers.
2: This sounds like Antarctica, actually.
3: I think it is very similar to Antarctica
5: and for similar reasons, because we didn't want to be fighting a war down at the South Pole. So we were saying, okay, let's just agree not to do that. Let's not right. go there because <laughs> that, would, that would be awful, you know? <laughs> um, the treaty also says states can't build military stations in space. They can't occupy the moon. We can't put nukes in orbit or anywhere in space. Basically, it says we agree that we go forth in peace.
3: Okay, but as Nick and I recently learned in an episode about the Space Force, which is specifically (laughs) designed to protect stuff in space, it's not that straightforward. Right. Like space is filled with satellites that help defense systems. And we are certainly looking toward the future as potentially having some conflict having to do with space.
2: Yeah, the reality isn't as high-minded as this go-forth-in-peace language aspires it to be.
5: I think when you hear the old speeches of JFK where he says, you know, essentially, let's go forth in peace, you can kind of hear the threat in his voice.
4: (laughs) All of us salute the brave cosmonauts of the Soviet Union. The new horizons of outer space must not be riven by the old bitter concepts of imperialism and sovereign claims. Other treaties
5: of that era dealt with the more practical matters of space law. And in many ways, these treaties mirror ideas in maritime law, so the law Mm -hmm. of the sea. Mm -hmm. One way it's similar is that you have an obligation to help other ships in distress, just as you would in most cases at sea. But one way it's different from the sea is that objects can also crash to Earth. Like, what happens if a satellite lands on someone's house?
4: Here's George. Damage on the space of the earth is absolute liability. So there is no mitigation of saying somebody else is at fault. It really doesn't matter, okay? The launching state or states are absolutely liable. But if if an accident happens in space, such as if two space objects collide, then it's fault liability. And that's somewhat equivalent to your fault liability for regular traffic accidents.
2: So this is like the space law version of the fine print of a car insurance policy.
5: Another difference from maritime law is the law of salvage. Do you know this one? at least at sea.
3: I know that when I play my favorite video game, I can pick up anything in the sea that I want, Justine. There you go. If it's out there, <laughs> I'm allowed to pick the flotsam right up. I thought that
2: if you you know, dug something up from the ocean, you were obligated to return it from whence it came.
3: You get a
5: reward.
2: Yeah. It's kind of like our Fifth Amendment stuff again. You get compensation for it.
5: Not so in space.
4: The Outer Space Treaty makes the ownership of a space object and any component part of the space object, the ownership is perpetual. You never lose it.
5: And that becomes a problem because nobody can clean up anybody else's broken satellites. So all this space junk is just building up. Finally, like maritime law, there's a treaty called the Registration Convention.
4: Which sort of suggests that countries uh, register space objects that they launch with the United Nations.
5: But the operative word here is suggests.
4: It is not a requirement and it is not always done.
5: I mean, I don't know. Can you think of an instance in which a country might be disinclined to register their space objects?
2: Yeah, like if it's a secret spy satellite? <laughs> I don't think
3: we should name any countries here, but I know what we're all thinking. I know what we're thinking. Spy satellite. <laughs>
5: yeah. The International Space Station is kind of a special case in all of this
4: the international space station is a orbiting platform with different sections. Each partner to the space station has its own section. The United States has its portion of the space station and the United States law applies in its section. Japan has its section, Japanese law applies in its section. And then they have uh, the agreements of how they will resolve differences.
2: I'm very familiar with all the different sections in the ISS because of my son's obsession with space.
5: Oh, really? I know that your son is quite a thorough uh, researcher, so we'll have to run this by him to see what I got wrong. (laughs) I think you'd appreciate that. The Outer Space Treaty was signed almost 60 years ago. And while that version of the space race is over, We're in a new era of extraterrestrial exploration, and it's not just state rockets headed up there anymore. Private companies like SpaceX are putting objects into orbit now, and it's a time when we're renegotiating the question, who owns the skies?
8: You know, when you ask, well, who owns the sky? My initial reaction is like, well, nobody owns the sky, right?
5: This is DeAndre Smiles. He is an assistant professor of geography at the University of Victoria.
8: I'm Ojibwe. From my own kind of cultural perspective, it would be really weird for me to say, oh, we we own the sky. Because we don't. We, we're in relationship with the sky. We have accountabilities to the sky like through like clean air.
5: DeAndre is the author of an article called The Settler Logics of Outer Space, which argues that the language that we use around traveling into space, like as a pioneer of space as the next or even the final frontier, that that language is really familiar.
3: Yeah. And that that is very purposeful. Justine, I have learned a lot about the American principles of manifest destiny and expanding westward. And there's definitely the sense that once we get to California and we hit the ocean and by we I mean, this is a philosophy of white settlers. We started sort of panic looking around for somewhere else to go. And so that meant, you know, like spreading democracy to other countries for a while. And then when space was an option, There was a very real anxiety about getting there, like that race with the Soviet Union was very much tied to America's notion of being the expander, of always having a frontier. And Deandre is just one of many folks
5: writing about this and about how bringing a different approach to space means having accountability to places even beyond the planet.
8: We need to instead think about the deep embedded knowledge that sits in places. There's this kind of idea that like, well, it's empty, right? There's nobody that's living in outer space. There's no life there. But um, an Indigenous, you know, plural sort of reading of this would say, well, just because there's nothing living there doesn't mean that it's still not a space that we have to treat with respect and and care and, and really think about why it is that we're going into outer space in the first place.
5: One reason why we're going into outer space and space law expert george anthony long thinks this is one of the biggest issues that will test space law as it exists now is mining
3: mining as in like asteroids have a lot of good stuff on them and just like in the fantastic tv show the expanse (laughs) we're gonna have all these factions (laughs) form just because there's a lot of money and Asteroid minerals?
5: Resources. Absolutely. And even not just in asteroids, but the moon. Uh The moon has a lot of frozen water and helium-3, which is in high demand on this planet. And helium-3 also has nuclear fusion potential. But remember, don't these celestial bodies belong to no one?
4: cannot own property in space. Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty prohibits a state from exercising sovereignty in space or any celestial body or the moon. And while that is a very uh, noble goal, I'm not sure how practical that's gonna be because the question becomes, how do you protect a mining site or keep other people away from your mining site without exercising some form of control? So there are a couple
5: different efforts to figure this out this dilemma around mining one of them is called the moon treaty but very few countries have signed on to this one
4: it talks about the prohibition of property rights and it talks about having the obligation to uh, share some of the wealth that's gained from let's say resource extraction or mining in space
2: but like the great space powers i'm talking the u.s china russia they haven't signed on to this
5: no, they have not. And within the United States, we've got a law that passed in 2015, which says something different, uh, that you may not be able to claim an entire asteroid, but if you extract resources from it, you are entitled to those.
3: This is very funny, because is this the United States just saying, well, we have this law? Because <laughs> like, that's not a treaty. It's not between other nations. <laughs> it's not.
5: Uh, But meanwhile, NASA is leading something, an international agreement called the Artemis Accords, which is sort of affirming some of those principles in the old treaties, but is also trying to carve out more legal room for space mining. But it's still affirming that space is for all humanity ideal of that original Outer Space Treaty of 1967.
3: Yeah. And I can only imagine that once we actually start to be able to extract and acquire them, things are going to change <laughs> pretty drastically.
2: On a basic level, like the idea of towing an asteroid onto the planet that's just pure diamond, and suddenly diamonds don't mean anything anymore.
5: Yeah, we're going to have to have a new uh, DeBoer's company, or what? what is the name of that DeBeers. company?
2: DeBeers. Or you can just be like, oh, those are space diamonds. Those are inferior. <laughs> he got me a <laughs> ring, but it had a space diamond on it.
5: <laughs> it's not serious. I mean, yeah, what, I agree, Hannah. Whatever the solution is, it looks like we're going to be entering into a new era of space exploration, a Chinese mission in 2020 already brought back helium three from the surface of the moon. What? And China has definitely not signed the Artemis Accords.
2: What I think's most interesting about this is it's kind of like anything goes until suddenly it doesn't anymore. Like that's how we've done things Mm. so far. You know, Ad Coelum goes until it doesn't anymore. And yeah, right now we don't have nukes in space or rail guns in space and we're not mining space diamonds. But that's going to happen. And when it does, we're going to have another, have to do another episode, I think.
5: I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because there's this there's this idealistic language around space that does feel quite Star Trek. Um, like no one can occupy it Um The thing is, when you put something into orbit, especially geostationary orbit, that's really valuable orbital space. And if a satellite is in that space, like it's technically occupying it, no one else can be there. So it's it's already pretty fuzzy, you know.
2: Well, it's scary to me, too, Justine. The number of things that we are putting in space is growing exponentially as the years go by. And they all just stay there like nothing gets taken out. If space junk gets to be too big, if there's too much of it, we'll never be able to leave the planet again because there's a whirling ball of steel that surrounds our planet, and that terrifies me.
5: And it affects us on Earth, you know, yeah. like Right. I don't imagine that I'm alone when I like think about looking up at the moon and seeing you know, the lights of a truck backing up like a construction zone or a mining pit. You know, I feel a little like Thomas Cosby <laughs> like, "Hey, you you trespassed on something fundamental here you know
4: Mm -hmm.
1: today's show was a collaboration between outside in and civics 101 it was produced reported and mixed by justine paradise you can find nick and hannah's work at civics 101 podcast.org or by searching for civics 101 wherever you get your podcasts by the way, in case you're interested in Hannah's favorite video game, it's called Anno 1800. Thanks to Jim Salzman and to Laura Donahue, whose article, Who Owns the Skies, was a major resource for this episode. This episode was edited by Taylor Quimby and our executive producer, Rebecca Lavoie. Music in this episode came from Lobo Loco, Proliter, Triple Bacon, Larry Poppins, Gabriel Lewis, Ben Elson, Bonkers Beat Club, BOML, Anthony Earls, David Sesky, and Chris Zabrinsky. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In and Civics 101 are productions of New Hampshire Public Radio.
3: My mother has actually used her Merchant Marine card to get a lot of help and like a lot really? of passage in her <laughs> lifetime Passage. yeah There's
5: some yeah. big
2: air quotes around that
5: so you so when you're in distress at sea when your mom's in distress it's... <laughs>
0: <laughs> i didn't make that mean to make that yes, a your mom joke you must but... <laughs> <pay help.
4: laughs>
0: the living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories